Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Three times Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Thomas Friedman is a foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times and the author of From Beirut to Jerusalem, The World is Flat, The Lexus and the Olive Grove, and his latest, Thank You for Being Late, an optimist's guide to thriving in the age of accelerations. He took the Auckland stage fresh from interviewing Bill Gates at the CEO's summit in Seattle, and not long after attempting to question Donald Trump in his post-election meeting with the New York Times. These are extraordinary times. Friedman is an acute observer of world affairs. In a wide-ranging discussion with Michael Williams, he discusses his new book and other matters. We hope you enjoy this session. Apologies for that suspense. I completely misjudged the length of the walk back there. And it makes being a disappointing person to walk out on stage doubly so. I'm Michael Williams. I'm not Thomas Friedman. He'll be out in just a second. I'm your host for proceedings tonight. I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, Australia, and it is lovely to be back in New Zealand, back in Auckland, and back at Auckland Writers Festival. Uh, And thank you so much for putting on the weather. That's really good of you. Couldn't be more appreciative. It's so nice to get away to the tropics. Uh, Tonight's event promises to be a fantastic one. We've got a bit over an hour. Uh, In just under an hour's time, I'm going to throw to you for questions. I mention it now because sometimes the house lights come up and you're met with this kind of stunned look from the audience. So consider yourselves forewarned. Don't be stunned. You have one of the world's preeminent translators from English into English on the stage tonight. And he may even be able to translate from American into New Zealander. So uh, there will be much to ask and we will try and get through all of it, but you are in for a treat. Uh, Tonight's event wouldn't be possible, firstly without the extraordinary work of Anne O'Brien and her team at Auckland Writers Festival. A big round of applause for them. So good are they at what they do that I tell people they're Australian now, because that's what we do with successful New Zealanders. Tonight's event also wouldn't be possible without platinum patrons Betsy and Michael Benjamin. Uh, They make Tom Friedman's visit possible. Big round of applause for them. And as that applause dies down, think to yourself, I too could be a platinum patron. I don't know what it means, but someone would say my name on a stage and everyone would clap. It's, it's thrilling, I tell you, it's well worth doing. Thomas Friedman needs very little introduction. As I said, he is one of the world's foremost explainers of things. He's an internationally renowned author, reporter, and columnist for the failing New York Times. <laughs> Sad. Uh, he's the recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes and the author of six best-selling books, amongst them From Beirut to Jerusalem and The World is Flat, and his most recent book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. In the New York Times review of this latest book, uh, the reviewer points out that Friedman is to humanizing the abstract and explaining the complex what Mick Jagger is to sex. So please welcome the man <laughs> with rhetorical and journalistic moves like Jagger, Thomas Friedman. Thank you. Now, there is a lot to get through tonight, but I want to start with a kind of mini pledge, which is I think we need to keep your president out of the room for as long as possible in proceedings. I will will just say one thing about the failing New York Times. Um, We added 300,000 digital subscribers in the last quarter. in the last quarter of 2016, just under 300,000, which is more than 2014 and 2015 combined. Um, which, which is a statement, Michael, not just about hopefully the quality of our paper, but a statement about readers and how much they crave real news, not fake news. Yeah. Absolutely. So. You, you don't get that orange without a Midas touch, I think. Yeah, and he's, he's done that for the New York Times. Uh, I, I will say, we will come to him a bit later in the session, because there are many themes in this book that feel extremely timely and resonant. Um, and if he tweets during the session and anyone sees, do let us know, because yeah. war would put a damper on everything else that's going on. Um, We're but, not in tweeting terms, actually. Yeah, well, probably best. Probably best. But, Acceleration. I mean, everything is coming at us so fast. And the theme of your new book is this age of acceleration. But before we get to that, talk to me about the virtues of lateness. 
Well, the, the book is called um, Thank You for Being Late uh, for a Reason. And um, first of all, Michael, thank you for coming in to do this. I, I should say I really, really appreciate it. Um, and, um, uh, and to Anne O'Brien for bringing me here in the Writers' Festival. This is spectacular, uh, one, of, one of the world's best, so it's great to be here. Um, uh, the, the title of the book actually came from meeting people for breakfast in Washington, D.C., where I live over the years. And, Every once in a while, someone would come in 10, 15, uh, 20 minutes late, and they'd say, Tom, I'm, I'm really sorry. It was the weather, the traffic, the subway, the dog ate my homework. And um, uh, three years ago, one of them, Peter Corsell, an energy entrepreneur, um, did that, came 15 minutes late, said, I'm sorry, the weather, the traffic, the subway, the dog ate my homework. And I said to him spontaneously, actually, Peter, thank you for being late. Because you were late, I've been eavesdropping on their conversation. Fascinating, okay? Um, I've been people watching the lobby. Fantastic. And best of all, I just connected two ideas I've been struggling with for a month. So thank you for being late. Well, people started to get into it. They'd say, well, well you're welcome. Uh, because they, they understood, Michael, that I was, I was giving them permission to pause to slow down. In fact, my favorite quote from the front of the book is from my teacher and friend, Dove Seidman, who says, when you press the pause button on a computer, it stops. But when you press the pause button on a human being, it starts. That's when it starts to reflect, to rethink, and to reimagine. And, uh, and boy, don't we need to be doing a lot of that right now. So the book was actually triggered. Sorry, my vest is getting in the way of the microphone here. Um, the book was actually triggered when I paused uh, to engage with someone I wouldn't normally engage with. Um, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and um, I take the subway to work about once a week. And um, uh, that involves for me taking the um, a red line subway from Bethesda. I actually drive from my house to a public parking garage in downtown Bethesda. I take the red line into D.C. I go to the New York Times Bureau there, which is near the White House. I work and go back. Well, anyways, about three years ago now, a little over three years now, I did that, parked in the parking garage, took the red line in, worked during the day, came back, red line, public parking garage, car, timestamp ticket, drove to the cashier's booth, gave it to the cashier. He looked at it and looked at me and said, I know who you are. Uh, and, excuse me, I'm just gonna take this off so it doesn't, I'm, yeah, it's, sorry. Be careful, it's an Auckland crowd. Right. Now you've set a precedent, and I think every five minutes for the next 75, an item of clothing comes off <laughs> on the stage. I heard this is a raffish yeah, place. No, no, they're, they're dangerous. Now the idea's in their head, Tom, be very careful. So uh, the garage attendant said, I, I know who you are. I said, uh, great. Uh, he said, I read your column. I said, great, the parking guy reads my column. I said, I don't always agree. I thought, get me out of here. Um, but I, I said, well, that's good. It means you always have to check. Uh, and then I drove off and thinking, that's really nice. The parking guy reads my column. A week later, I took my weekly trip into DC, drove to the Bethesda Hyatt public parking garage, parked there, red line in, office work, red line back, parking garage, car, timestamp ticket, cashier's booth, same guys there. Uh, this time he says, Mr. Friedman, I have my own blog. Would you read my blog? I thought, oh my God, the parking guy is now my competitor. <laughs> what just happened? So uh, I said, look, write it down for me and I will, uh, I'll look at it. So he tore off a piece of receipt paper and wrote on it, odinambi.com. Uh, I got home, I called it up on my computer. Turns out he's Ethiopian, uh, writes about Ethiopian politics from the perspective of the Oromo people, a real democracy advocate. It was a little rough at the edges, but it was pretty good. Anyways, I thought about him for a couple days. I told my wife and, and um, eventually concluded that this was a sign from God, that I should pause uh, and engage this guy. But I, I didn't have his email, so the only thing I could do was park in the parking lot every day. <laughs> and I did that for four days. And, and um, 
Uh, we eventually overlapped at seven in the morning. I parked under the gate so it couldn't come down. I got out of my car. I said, Ayile, now I know his name, Ayile Bougie, uh, uh, I would like your email. I'd like to send you a message. So he gladly gave me his email, and that night I began an email exchange with him, which is all in the front of the book. Some of it's kind of funny. Uh, in which I basically said, I have a proposition for you. I am ready to teach you how to write a column if you will tell me your life story. And he said, I see you're proposing a deal. I like this deal. Um, so uh, we agreed to meet at Pete's Coffee House in Bethesda, near his office, uh, two weeks later. And um, I came with a six-page memo on how to write a column. And he came with his life story. Uh, Ethiopian immigrant, as I said, a graduate of Haile Selassie University in Addis Ababa in economics, was blogging on Ethiopian websites about democracy in Ethiopia, got thrown out of the country. Um, uh, he was welcomed in America as a political exile, um, got a job in the garage, was continuing to blog on Ethiopian websites, but he found them too slow. So he decided to start his own blog and told me, now, Mr. Friedman, I feel empowered. Uh, his Google metrics say he's read in 30 different countries. This is my parking guy, you know. And um, it's a wonderful story, Michael, of how anyone today can participate in the global conversation. Well, I then explained to him how to write a column. Um, if the world is a big data set, this is my algorithm. It's how I go about organizing my thoughts. And um, I explained to him that a news story is meant to inform. Um, I could write a news story about um, the Writers' Conference here, the Writers' Festival, and, um, and Anne would tell me whether it informed better or worse. Uh, but a column, what I do, an opinion uh, article is actually meant to provoke. So I'm either in the heating business or the lighting business. Um, that's what I do. I'm either doing a heating or a lighting, okay? I'm, I'm either stoking up an emotion in you or I'm illuminating something for you. And if I, if I really do it well, um, I do both. And I will know that I produce a reaction by the reaction I get from readers. Uh, some might read my column and say, uh, I didn't know that, that's good, I created some light. Uh, I never looked at it that way, that's good, more light. Uh, I never connected those things, that's good, more light. Your favorite as a columnist, you live for this, it happens four times a year. Uh, Mr. Friedman, you said exactly what I felt, but didn't know how to say, God bless you, God bless you. Um, I wanna kill you dead, you and all your offspring, I get that, um, uh, that tells me I've produced some heat. Um, but I explained to Ayili that to produce heat and light required a chemical reaction. And you have to combine three compounds. The first is what is your value set? What, what, what are the set of values you're trying to push into the world as an opinion columnist? Are you a communist, a capitalist, a neocon, a neoliberal, a libertarian, a Keynesian, a Marxist? What is, what is the value set you're trying to push? Second, how do you think the machine works? So the machine is my shorthand for, for what are the biggest forces, the, the biggest gears and pulleys of the world shaping more things in more ways in more places on more days. Because as a columnist, I'm always carrying around in my head a working hypothesis of how the machine works. Because what I'm trying to do is take my values and push the machine uh, in my direction. And if I don't know how it works, I either won't push it or I'll push it in the wrong direction. So all my books are really have been an attempt to say, here's how I think the big gears and pulleys work. And lastly, what have you learned about people and culture? Because there's no column without people and there are no people without culture. How does the machine affect different people and culture? And how do they come back and affect the machine? Stir those three together, let it rise, bake for 45 minutes, and if you do it right, you'll produce a column that produces heat or light. And where the book came from, uh, just to conclude, is that um, the more, Ayila uh, and I had three sessions at Pete's Coffee House in Bethesda. I had never put this together like this before. And the more I explained to him, the more I would come home and say to my wife, um, well, if that's what a column is, what's my value set? Because um, the people who read me know that I, I'm not quite a liberal. Um, I'm not a conservative. I have a quirky set of values because they actually don't come from a library or a philosopher. They come from the small town in Minnesota where I grew up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s at a time and place where politics works, which is why I'm such a political moderate. Um, how do I think the machine works today? And what have I learned about people and culture? And that was the book I decided to write. Those six pages on what a columnist looks like, I mean, how much of a luxury is it to stop 
and assess what you do, to assess that chemical reaction, assess those things. I know the Times gave you a chance to scale back the frequency of yeah. columns for the writing of it. Because what strikes me about this book, and I, I think it's a wonderful book, is it feels like an intensely personal book. Uh, Possibly intensely personal. Yes, yeah. Possibly, more, more possibly your most personal yeah. book yeah. Uh, so far, and that seems to me to come from that introspection about your own chemical reaction and what triggers it. It's personal in that way, Michael, and, and there's a, it's personal in, in quite honestly a, a, another subtext, which is that uh, I covered the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, uh, for the New York Times uh, in different guises as a reporter in Beirut, as a reporter in Jerusalem, as the chief White House correspondent, as the chief diplomatic correspondent, as a columnist. I basically covered it for you know, over 30 years. And um, uh, in recent years, I, I sort of looked back and looked at all the things that I had supported, um, uh, whether it was Camp David or Oslo or Arab Spring, democracy in Iraq, the surge. Um, and I, I kind of looked back and realized that I'd been pushing all these rocks up the hill, and they, they had all actually fallen back down on top of me. And that if it were American baseball, I was actually batting zero, zero, zero. So um, I decided in recent years that I really wanted to bring my energy back home. And a few years ago, I wrote a book uh, with my friend Michael Mandelbaum that used to be us, how America lost its way in the world it invented, and how we can come back. And um, I, I really coined the phrase, a nation building at home. I really wanted to bring my energies back home. And then I woke up a few years ago and realized that the Middle East had followed me home. Um, we were behaving just like the politics there. We didn't call them Sunnis and Shiites. We called each other Democrats and Republicans. But um, the, tribal, um, the tribalization of politics had taken over my country. I literally would hear people say, well, I, I certainly never want my kids to marry one of them. And the them they were referring to was not someone of a different religion or race, not like that's a good thing, but, um, but someone of a different party. And um, so I decided to take to go back home to the little town in Minnesota where I grew up and um, where my own moderate centrist politics was forged and try to understand, first of all, whether I just made it all up and was just remembering it in a gauzy way or whether it was in fact real. And if it was real, what were the lessons and could I scale them back? And so that's, that's the emotional subtext of the book. I, w I want to come back to to two of the things you've just said in particular. One is St. Louis Park, uh, and the other is that failure to talk to one another yeah. and the importance of it. Um, but before we get there, I think we need to get to acceleration. Yeah. Um, I should say you should feel better about the Middle East because Jared Kushner's fixing it all now. So that's True. I mean, uh, nothing else I mean, to Trump, about. I'm sure just Trump looked around and said, my son-in-law, I mean, he went to Jewish summer camp. He, surely he could fix the Middle East, you know? I mean, so. What could possibly go wrong? Yes, exactly. So, uh, peace of mind. Went there. to Camp Ramah. I mean, it's. A, um, it's a, uh. um, but acceleration. You you make the case in the book, um, uh, and many of these ideas are ones that you've been uh, dealing with over yeah. the past few longer works. Uh, but this book really focuses on the post 2007 uh, situation of acceleration, and you really point to that year as a kind of crucial point for understanding where we are now. Talk us through why 2007. Well. Um, so the structure of the book is that the first part is how the machine works, and then the second part is about how the machine is um, not just changing, but reshaping our world, and reshaping five realms in particular, politics, geopolitics, uh, the workplace, ethics, and community. So my argument about how the machine works today, that what are the biggest forces shaping more things in, more places and more ways and more days. I believe we're in the middle of three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So um, uh, the market for me is digital globalization, not your grandfather's globalization. That was containers on ships. That's actually flat to going down globally. 
uh, but digital globalization, where everything's now being digitized and globalized, whether it's through, through MOOCs or, or PayPal or Facebook or Twitter, um, if you put that on a graph, digital globalization, it looks like a hockey, a hockey stick. Um, Mother Nature for me is climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth in the developing world. Put that on a graph, it looks like a hockey stick. And Moore's Law, coined by Gordon Moore in 1965, the co-founder of Intel, the makers of the, the sort of workhorse microchip, posited in 1965 that the speed and power of microchips would double roughly every 24 months. Now, it's, it's now closer to 30 months, uh, Michael, but um, that exponential has held up for 52 years. Pretty phenomenal. And um, uh, every year, in fact, somebody writes a story in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, or Forbes, that says Moore's Law is over. Moore's Law is going to end this year. And um, what they all have in common is they were all wrong. Um, and. Uh, I was saying to, to Michael backstage that um, the, the main Intel microprocessor now that's driving your phone and the computers in your car at your office is a 14 nanometer chip that has 37.5 million transistors per square millimeter. Um, at the end of 2017, under Moore's law, Intel will introduce its 10 nanometer chip, which will have 100 million transistors per square millimeter. So if you think things are fast now, or that computers are smart now, just wait a few years. So um, let's focus on the, the Moore's Law uh, part for a second. One of the hardest things that I had to come to grasp and that I found so difficult to explain to readers was the power of an exponential, because we so rarely encounter one. And the, the Intel people helped me because their engineers once did a back of the envelope calculation. They said, what if the VW Beetle, the 1971 VW Beetle, had improved to today at the same rate microchips had? And they, they uh, with a little calculation, they estimated that if that 1971 Beetle had improved at the same rate of microchips, today it would go 300,000 miles an hour. Um, it would get two million miles per gallon, and it would cost four cents, okay? <laughs> so that's the power of the exponential that, that we are, we're, we're in the middle of. So my chapter on the subject, is, as, as Michael was alluding, is called, What the Hell Happened in 2007? And um, I know what you're thinking, 2007, what, what is this guy talking about? I mean, such an innocuous year, right? Well, here's what happened in 2007. Uh, the year was kicked off at the Moscone Center in San Francisco when one Steve Jobs introduced the first iPhone, unleashing a process by which we're now about halfway to putting into the hands of everyone on the planet a handheld computer with more compute power in it than the Apollo space mission that doubles as a phone and a camera. That's how the year kicked off. Uh, in 2007, actually it was, happened late 2006, but it scaled in 2007, a company called Facebook opened its platform to anyone with a registered email address and broke out of high schools and universities, and in 2007 it went global. In uh, 2007, a company called Twitter um, uh, spun off on its own independent platform and went global. Uh, in 2007, the most important software you probably never heard of uh, it shapes your life today. It's called Hadoop. It's named after the founder's son's toy elephant uh, was unleashed into the wild. Hadoop is what enables a million computers to work together as one. Uh, that's called big data. Now, its core algorithms weren't actually invented by Doug Cutting, the founder of Hadoop. They were invented by Google. Um, uh, two in particular called GFS and MapReduce. But as Doug explains in the book, Google lives in the future and sends us letters back home. And um, what Google did was, for the open source software community, leave a trail of breadcrumbs for this algorithm so the open source community could reverse engineer it and create a public free version of this foundational algorithm for big data. But 2007 was still just clearing its throat because in 2007, uh, another hugely important software company called GitHub 
opened its doors. GitHub is now the world's largest repository of open source software. Uh, in 2007, uh, that same company, Google, bought a little-known TV company called YouTube. And in 2007, the same company called Google launched into the wild its own operating system called Android. Uh, in 2007, um, uh, IBM launched the world's first cognitive computer called Watson. Uh, in 2007, Amazon released the world's first ebook reader called the Kindle. Uh, in 2007, three design students in San Francisco who were attending the design conference that year discovered all the hotel rooms were sold out. And one of them had three spare air mattresses. And they rented them out. And it worked out so well, in 2007, they started a company called Airbnb. So here's what else happened. If you can get the PowerPoint up. Uh, I brought up just a few slides. That's what Moore's Law, law looks like on a graph. Um, so this is the cost of sequencing a human genome. Um, in 2001, it cost $100 million to sequence a human genome. In 2006, it fell to $10 million, and then you'll notice it goes over a cliff down to uh, 2007. Um, solar energy took off in 2007, as did a process for extracting natural gas from tight shale called fracking. Between 2006 and 2008, America's natural gas reserves increased 35%. That is a staggering number for such a short period. Um, in 2007, well, this is a graph of basically social networks. So that white line that goes straight down, that's actually the cost of generating a megabit of data. And you'll notice the line goes straight down in uh, 2007. Um, the blue line is the speed at which you can transmit that data. And you'll notice the two lines cross in 2008. That's, as we say in America, close enough for government work. Um, in 2007, this thing we call the cloud was born. In 2007, the internet cost, crossed a billion users, actually late 2006. In 2007, Intel for the first time went off silicon to extend Moore's law. It introduced non-silicon materials into its microchips. In 2005, Michael Dell, the founder of, Michael Dell, of, of Dell Computers, retired. And in 2007, he decided he better come back to work. Turns out, friends, 2007, I think, could be understood in time as the single greatest technological inflection point since Gutenberg. And we completely missed it because of 2008. So right when our physical technologies took off, like we were all on a moving sidewalk that suddenly went from five to 50 miles an hour, and we all felt the ground moving under our feet, our social technologies, the, the learning, the managerial changes, the governing, the regulatory changes that would need to go with that kind of an acceleration, they all froze, because we entered in America, and, and really in the world, the deepest recession since 1929. And I believe, Mike, a lot of Brexit and Trump were born in that dislocation, because a lot of people got caught in that dislocation. Do you see any causal link between the elements that led to 2007 and the elements that led to 2008? You know, it's a very good question. There's been some econ economic historians have pointed out that 1929 was also associated with a, a, a huge technological leap. Um, I don't know, I think it needs more more perspective. Um, uh, all I know is, is what happened that year, basically, was that if you think of your computer uh, at home, your laptop, or even your desktop, it, it really has five key components. It's got a CPU, it's got that processor, that Moore's Law chip, it's got a storage chip, also Moore's Law, um, it's got networking, it's got software, and it's got a sensor, it's got a camera. And what I show in the book, basically, is all five have been in a Moore's Law. And I think they all melded together in 2007 into this thing we call the cloud. The cloud. But I, I ban the use of the, use of the word the cloud in my book. 
because it sounds, sounds so soft, so, so fluffy, so cuddly, so benign. It sounds like a Joni Mitchell song. <laughs> I've looked at clouds from both sides. <laughs> this ain't no cloud, folks. Um, I rename it in the book, The Supernova. Supernova is the largest force in nature. It's the explosion of a star. And I think what happened in 2007 was an incredible release of energy into the hands of men, women, and machines that in a very short period of time changed four kinds of power, changed the power of one. What one person can do today as a maker or a breaker is amplified to a scale we've never seen before. We have a president who can sit in his pajamas in the White House and tweet directly, communicate directly, with hundreds of millions of people around the world without an editor, a libel lawyer, or a filter, okay? And, um, what a world. Yeah, but here's what's scary. The head of ISIS can do the exact same thing from Raqqa province in Syria. That's when you know the power of one has changed. The power of machines have changed. Machines now have all five senses. We've never lived in a world where machines had all five senses. And we crossed that line, I would argue, on February 14th, 2011, on all places, a game show. Uh, there were three contestants, an American game show. Uh, two were the all-time Jeopardy champions. And the third simply went by his last name, Watson. Uh, Mr. Watson, of course, who was a computer, passed on the first question in the show. The second question was, it's worn on the foot of a horse and used by a dealer in a casino. And in under 2.5 seconds, Mr. Watson buzzed in before the two humans and in perfect Jeopardy style said, what is a shoe? And the world kind of hasn't been the same since. Uh, it's changed the power of flows. So ideas now flow and circulate at a speed we've never seen before and change. You know, five years ago, President Obama said marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, today, blessedly so, in my view, he says marriage is between any two human beings who love each other, and he followed Ireland in that opinion. So ideas now flow and circulate and come out of nowhere in ways we've never seen before. And lastly, it's changed the power of many. So we humans, as a collective, with these amplified powers, we are now the biggest forcing function on and in nature, so much so that the new geological era is being named for us the Anthropocene. And what the second half of the book is about is an argument that these four changes in power, they're not just changing your world, they are reshaping our world. And they're gonna force us to change everything about politics, geopolitics, ethics, the workplace, and community. And that's what the second half of the book is about. In many ways, you're a truly terrifying man. I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> Well, I tell people I can, I can ruin any dinner party. Um, yeah. <laughs> I do weddings, I do bar mitzvahs, whatever you like, okay? I just, it's a, just beware. Say, okay, kids, gather around. I'm <laughs> taking my jacket off. Right. <laughs> but you have this wonderful definition in the book where you uh, that much abused and bandied around idea of disruption. And you, and I'm sorry to paraphrase, but you Please. make the argument that disruption is what happens when uh, technology or a business method comes along that makes you feel like your old one, your own one is outdated. It's that challenge to the individual's conception of the world. And that's such a kind of deeply humane understanding of it. And it gets to the heart of the move from the first part of yeah. your book to the second part of your book, which is you diagnose this extraordinary period of change but then you spend real time with what that means for human beings and whether we're equal, I guess, to that change. So let me talk about um, a couple of these realms, how I think they're being reshaped. And let's start with the one that's, I'm sure, near and dear to the audience here and, and to you, Mike, which is the workplace, which we're all concerned about. So I'm gonna put up the next slide, um, if I could. Um, I, was, I was out at uh, Google X, which is Google's research um, uh, center, and uh, talking to Astro Teller, who runs Google X. And, um, uh, and he went over, to, I told him my thesis, and he went over to his black, his whiteboard actually, got on a magic marker, and he do this graph. Um, and it's just a simple abstraction, but basically the blue line across the middle, uh, you'll notice has a slightly positive slope, 
Um, that's the average rate at which human beings and societies and communities adapt to change over time. So it has a positive slope, but it's very gradual. The, then he drew this white line below, very flat at the beginning, and then accelerating upward. That's technology. So if you, at the left end of this line, if you were in the 11th century or the 12th century, your bow and arrow did not get better. You could go a whole century and there was no bow and arrow 2.0, okay? Uh, the line was very flat. Um, but then we got, you know, eventually the scientific revolution, Copernicus and Galileo, Intel, Steve Jobs, Moore's Law, the line starts to go due north. And then Astro drew that little diamond and he said, we are here. We're at a point now where technology is really evolving faster than many people in the workplace and many towns and cities can regulate in order to absorb it. And then he went and got another magic marker and he drew that little dotted line. And I said, what's that, Astro? And he said, that's learning faster and governing smarter. And that is the challenge of every society today. How do we lift that adaptation line to meet technology where it is, or at least approximately where it's going? So my chapter on the workplace in the book is called How We Turn AI into IA. How do we take artificial intelligence and turn it into intelligent assistance, A-N-C-E, intelligent assistance, A-N-T-S, and intelligent algorithms so more of our citizens and communities can learn faster and govern smarter. Let, let me give an example of each one. So my example of intelligent assistance is the Human Resources Department at AT&T, our big global telecom company. I spent a lot of time with them. So AT&T has 360,000 employees. They compete every day with Verizon and Orange and Deutsche Telekom. And so living right next to the supernova. Pretty good chance that whatever they're doing in their human resources department is gonna come to a neighborhood near you. So here's their human resources social contract in a nutshell. Their CEO, Randall Stevenson, begins the year with a radically transparent speech on where the company is going that year, what businesses they're gonna be in, and what skills you need as an employee at AT&T. Then they um, put all of their employees on their own in-house LinkedIn system. So they've got Michael Williams, Michael Williams, Michael Williams. Then they decide, what are the 10 skills you need to be a successful employee at AT&T this year? It turns out, Michael, you've got seven of them, but you're missing three. Then they partnered with Sebastian Thrun from Audacity, the online university, and he created nano degrees for all 10. Then they come back to you, Michael, and say, Michael, here's the deal. Um, we'll give you up to $8,000 a year to take the nano degrees for the skills you're missing. In fact, we understand you're interested in archeology. span You want to take a course in archeology? span We'll pay for that as well. In fact, we've got a $6,000 online master's degree in computer science at Georgia Tech. You wanna take that online? We'll pay for that too. There's just one condition. You have to take these courses on your own time, at night and on weekends. Now, if Michael says, you know, I've climbed up one too many telephone poles and I just don't wanna do this anymore. AT&T now has a wonderful severance package for Michael, but he will not be working at AT&T much longer. Their social contract with Michael is that if he takes these courses, um, they will offer the new jobs to you. First, they won't go outside. Their social contract with their employees is now very simple. You can be a lifelong employee at AT&T, but only if you're a lifelong learner. If you are not ready to be a lifelong learner, you can no longer be a lifelong employee at AT&T. And that is the social contract coming to a neighborhood near you. The idea that in my generation, you go to college for four years and dine out on that knowledge for 30 at the workplace, that is so yesterday, okay? Um, uh, you know, I, there's a congressman in Minnesota, in, uh, I quote in the book, uh, Congressman Nolan, he's got one of my favorite quotes. He said, you know, growing up in Minnesota in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, if you were a white male in Minnesota then, you actually needed a plan to fail. You, you, you actually needed a plan to fail. You had to sit down and say, now how can I fail here? Okay, because there was such an updraft of high-wage, middle-skilled, blue-collar and white-collar work. And what's new today is you need a plan to succeed, and you've got to update it every year.
So that's intelligent assistance. Intelligent assistant, the example I give is Qualcomm, a very important technology company based in San Diego. They made the inside of your iPhone. Uh, they're not a consumer-facing company, um, but extremely important company. They have a 64-building campus in, in, uh, in San Diego, and two years ago they took six of the buildings and they put sensors on everything they could. Every door, window, heating, cooling, computer, light, they put sensors on everything. They beam all the data up to the cloud, up to the supernova, and then they beam it back down onto an iPad with an incredibly friendly user interface for their janitors. So if Michael leaves his computer on or a pipe burst above his head, they know it before you do, and they can just swipe down and see either who to call or how to fix it themselves. They turned their janitors into maintenance technologists. The janitors at Qualcomm now give tours to foreign visitors. What do you think that does for the dignity of a janitor? Because he or she has an intelligent assistant enabling them to live above the line. Last example is um, in America, we, have, we don't have A-levels and O-levels. We have, you have to take your PSAT exam in 11th grade, which is a practice test to take your SAT exam in 12th grade um, to see what you get in verbal and math to get into the college of your choice. So um, uh, a lot of parents, um, and I'm not innocent of this, in 11th grade when their kids hit that, they go out and hire a tutor uh, for $200 an hour to goose their kids' scores uh, in math and reading to have a better chance to do well in the SAT, a completely rigged game. So um, three years ago, the College Board, which administers the SAT, um, partnered with Khan Academy, the online learning platform, and they created free PSAT and SAT prep. And so online. So the way it works is Michael takes his PSAT in 11th grade, he gets the results back, it says, Michael, Michael, Michael. Uh, you did really good in, in reading and literature and comprehension, but you, you have some problems with math. In fact, you have problems with fractions and right angles. It then takes Michael to a practice site just for fractions and right angles, tailored just to your weakness. If you do well there, it takes you to another site that says you could be in advanced math in 11th grade, another site with college scholarships, uh, and another site that partners you with young boys and girls around America and the Boys and Girls Clubs of America to help you through this process. Um, last year, three million American kids took free SAT and PSAT prep on this intelligent algorithm, helping them live above the line. Last example, called Opportunity at Work. We have about 32 million Americans who started college but never finished. Some went one year, two years, three years, three and a half years. And then they go to apply for a job, no BA, sorry, no job. So there's a huge amount of wasted uh, human talent. So uh, platforms, one's called Opportunity at Work, have arisen where you'd come in, Michael, and say, hey, I've, I've been to college for two and a half years. They will then test you, determine what you learned in those two and a half years, badge it with, a, with their own badge, and then partner with companies to slot you in, even without your BA. So I profile in the book a young African-American woman, Lashana Lewis, who went to Michigan Tech, she studied computer science for three and a half years, had to drop out for family reasons, ended up driving a school bus to and from a computer school, couldn't make that up, and working on the help desk, helping lawyers rediscover their lost passwords. Um, she, got, uh, she got connected to Opportunity at Work. They badged her knowledge, got her a job at MasterCard as a systems engineer. She's now a senior systems engineer at MasterCard, and as she says in the last line of my interview in the book, and I still don't have my BA. So what I say to people always is, um, when I tell this to American audiences, I say, um, I'm gonna make you all a bet here. I'm gonna bet none of you have heard of any of this. And that's because you were following our last election where Bernie Sanders' big idea to help Americans in the age of acceleration was to tear down all the big banks. Donald Trump's big idea was to tear down Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton's big idea was to direct you to her website, www.hillaryclinton.com. Uh, in fact, what I found in researching the book, there is massive innovation going on 
in communities, in the workplace, on this whole pipeline of education to work. In fact, there was so much innovation, at one point I thought of, I should just write a book about this. In fact, there's so much innovation, nothing has to be invented. Whatever you can think of, somebody's already doing it in some community. It just needs to be identified, highlighted, and scaled. And you asked backstage, I'll preempt your question, what are my sources of optimism? That's one of them. Yeah, I did. I said backstage, how on earth are you an optimist? And, and that's where I want to take it from here, Please. because the, um, you're quite right. We don't know about it. This isn't the battleground on which politics is fought. Uh, in fact, if we're told anything about the results of your last election, it's that they tell us that there are two Americas, or a divided America, or this massive disconnect, this kind of inability to talk to people, whether it's the coasts and the flyover states, or it's the, you know, however you characterize it, the idea is that somehow there's a lost America whose voice isn't being heard. Are you saying that out there in the wilderness they're having a better time than those uh, whose voices are being heard? I'm saying, Michael, that um, it's actually a, a much more mixed picture. And this notion that America is these two coasts that are globalizing, pluralizing, um, you know, um, and, 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 and thriving, and then there's this sort of flyover America that's all, um, uh, you know, falling into addiction and despair. I mean, Trump's, if you listen to Trump's inaugural speech, you know, it was American carnage, a vast wasteland of rusting cities and tombstones. I don't know if you saw the story about George W. Bush, President George W., who was on the, on the dais, and he was heard to say afterwards, and he didn't deny this, after hearing Trump's speech, speech that was some weird shit, okay? So, <laughs> all right? And, and you can bet he said that, okay? So, uh, um, uh, let me, let me uh, give you a particular answer and then a general one. So the particular one, we'll, I'll talk about my community and, and the whole role of, of community, because um, uh, that's really the foundation of my optimism. Let, let me guide you into that and, yeah, please. Uh, and just ask you about that idea that you needed a plan to fail. Um, and you did identify that in your community back when you were growing up, yeah. that was true for white men in yes. particular. Um, you revisit St. Louis Park, you yeah. go back, you talk to them now. Who succeeds and fails now, and what do they have to do to achieve it? So let me do the before and we'll do the after. Um, so I, I, I was, um, I'm from Minnesota. Uh, I grew up in a, I was actually born in North Minneapolis. Um, and um, basically the short story is, um, uh, the Jewish community in Minnesota all lived in a ghetto uh, in the 30s, 40s, um, and early 50s uh, with African-Americans in North Minneapolis, not because we were integrated there, but because we were both isolated there. Minneapolis was known as the capital of anti-Semitism until Hubert Humphrey became mayor, a real hero in our house, in, in house and cleaned it out of city government. After the war, um, the, the Jews were able to get out uh, of the ghetto, and um, in a very short period, in the mid-50s, I was born in 1953, and my parents moved in 1956, virtually the entire Jewish community of Minneapolis moves out of North Minneapolis to one town, um, a suburb outside of the city called St. Louis Park, which was the only one that didn't have restricted covenants and had a housing stock that could take them all. So my aunt and uncle moved one door down this way, my other uncle moved one door down that way. Um, so pretty much overnight, a suburb that had been 100% white, Protestant, Catholic, Scandinavian, um, Minnesota's very Scandinavian, uh, overnight became 20% Jewish, 80% white, Protestant, Scandinavian. If Israel and Sweden had a baby, it would be St. Louis Park, okay? Uh, and, um, and I tell the story about how we all got to know each other. And um, there were broken hearts and broken loves and friendships and whatnot. Uh, but we had, we had an amazing community leadership, and we, we built a pretty interesting, inclusive community. Because um, uh, I grew up with, and I either went to religious school or lived in the same neighborhood with, in roughly the same period, the Cone Brothers, the filmmakers. 
Um, Al Franken, the senator, uh, Norm Ornstein, the political scientist, Michael Sandel, the political theorist, Sharon has been the guitarist, Dan Wilson wrote someone like you with Adele. We actually have our own Wikipedia page, I won't go through the whole list, but it was a freaky place. Um, and this was not a Upper West Side neighborhood, this is a little one high school town in Minnesota. The Coen Brothers film A Serious Man, is that? Well, the Coen Brothers movie A Serious Man was about our town. Yeah. Um, and. Um, in No Country for Old Men, actually, if you saw that, there's a scene where Churga, um, uh, the bad guy, blows up a car outside of a pharmacy in Mexico to uh, distract people because he wants to go in and steal drugs. And at the end of the scene, it pans to the name of the pharmacy and it says, Mike Zoss Drugs. That was our little St. Louis Park pharmacy. <laughs> so the Coen Brothers movies are full of homages to, to St. Louis Park. And um, uh, I, I tell the story about, uh, as I say, how, how we, how we built this community, and it's really the story, what I learned from it, Michael, is that, you know, there's no moat around St. Louis Park, there's no drawbridge, there's no wall. It's utterly physically indistinguishable from uh, the, the neighborhoods around it. But it had remarkable leaders, not heroes, just it had three generations of really decent men and women, teachers, principals, and city leaders, and it's amazing what just three generations of decent leaders can do. Ordinary people behaving extraordinary. And I grew up under Mondale, Humphrey, McCarthy, these really progressive politicians. And it infused in me uh, a real civic ethic. I took it into journalism, the Coen brothers into film, Al Franken into politics, Sandel into political theory. We all kind of took Minnesota out into the world for a spin you know, uh, as it were. And, and we all were infused with this thing that you have to have gone to Minnesota to know, uh, it's called Minnesota Nice. Um, and uh, uh, it's hard to explain, I, I, I give a couple of examples in the book. My, I was home for a wedding while I was writing the book and my very close childhood friend, Jay Goldberg, came to the wedding and he said that on the, that morning, his wife, Eileen, had been driving on the ring road around Minneapolis and a driver almost drove her off the road. And she came home and said, Jay, I was so mad, I almost honked. Um, that's, that's Minnesota for road rage, okay? So there was, a, in the 30s and 40s, there was a Jewish mafia in Minnesota. And um, my dad grew up with these guys. He was not in the mafia. I was run by a guy named Kid Can, but he knew a lot of these guys. And when I was five or six, um, one of my dad's friends got sentenced to jail. And for a Young boy, like, the idea that my dad knew someone who went to jail, that just was like really freaky to me. And I came to him and I said, Dad, what did he do? And I was very young, but I never forgot what he said. He said, son, he was shopping in a store before it was open. Um, uh, that's, that's Minnesota for breaking and entering, okay. So, um, so I, I tell this story about how this place shaped me and, and uh, so many others. I left Minnesota in 1971 to discover the world. And for this book, I came back 40 years later and I found the world had discovered Minnesota. Uh, I went back to my high school. Now it's 50% white, Protestant, Catholic, Scandinavian. Uh, it's 10% Jewish, 10% Hispanic now, and 30% Somali. Uh, because the same suburb that took the Jews took the Somali refugees. And um, now the inclusion challenge, so much deeper, so much wider, religiously and racially. But ain't that the story of America? And ain't that the story of the world? And so, um, so I, I, I really go back and I, I say, how are they doing? And, um, and they're doing pretty well. Um, the, my high school is still rated one of the top high schools in Minnesota. But it's a struggle, it's hard work. There's no, no getting around that. But what makes me an optimist, Michael, about Minnesota, about um, so many communities around America, and mine is by no means the only one, and we have communities that are struggling, to be sure. My, my point is simply that it's a much more mixed picture than people would realize, is that the problems that need fixing are enormous, but I am so struck by the number of people who want to get caught trying. And, you know, I have a physicist friend, just to finish this point, Amory Lovins, who was my teacher for the book, all the biology in the book, and, 
Amory, you know, every time I ask him, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Amory always likes to say, I'm neither, because they're just two different forms of fatalism. Everything will be great, everything will be awful, you know. Um, uh, Amory says, I believe in applied hope. And I love that phrase, because I believe in applied hope. Because what I've seen is so many people applying hope, don't know if it's gonna work, but they, they want to get caught trying. And, and that's why um, my book has a theme song. And um, uh, I actually explored, could I buy this song so when you open the book, you would play this song <laughs> like a Hallmark card plays Happy Birthday. And um, uh, the song is by Brandi Carlisle. She's a great country folk singer in America, and she's, she's written a song that I think is the anthem of our time. Uh, and the song is called The I, E-Y-E. And the main refrain is, I wrapped your love around me like a chain, but I never was afraid that it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. And you see, my three accelerations, I think they're a hurricane. I think we have a president trying to build a wall against the hurricane. And what I am trying to propose is that we build an eye, an eye that moves with the storm, draws energy from it, but creates a platform of dynamic stability within it, the healthy community, where people can feel connected, protected, and respected. And I think the great struggle in Western politics in the coming years is gonna be between the wall people and the eye people. And my book is a manifesto for the eye people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In about five minutes, we're gonna get the house lights up and there'll be a chance for you to ask questions. I'm sure you're all very well versed in the drill, but there'll be microphones for you to go to if you want to ask a question. It's a way of weeding out the people who are too lazy to walk to the <laughs> um, from asking questions. So those lights will come up in a few minutes. Please. I want to ask a little two-part thing Please. in response to that, because I, I love a prescription for an understanding of community being at the heart of a response to where we find ourselves. There's a gr great... Lincoln line about the, the dogmas of the unquiet past are inadequate for the stormy present, mm -hmm. which I think is a, yeah. a lovely uh, kind of concept. But I, I guess a two-part question before we go to the audience. How did Minnesota vote last year? Unfortunately, um, I'm proud of my state. Uh, it, they voted against Trump. Uh, he did not carry Minnesota. It was closer, though, than I thought. Um, but it, uh, he did not win Minnesota. And. We haven't talked as much as I would have liked about Mother Nature mm -hmm. and about the climate challenge, which you, you are so eloquent on and it's such an important one. But it is, as an undercurrent in this book, a, a case for the kind of great urgency of the problem that we face. And perhaps the inadequacy of small community response in dealing with it, the need for the national level, the need for the leadership that you so identify in your community, that leadership at a global scale. And that's where yeah. I find it hard to find optimism. Help me. Tom. Yeah, I, I, there I can't. Um, that's, that, that even um, it's uh, exhausts my uh, resources for optimism. Um, but I, 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 not entirely, because you know, I, I really think you know, Trump now is doing everything he can to turn the clock back. But uh, I, I, I do think it's too late for him in the best sense that um, uh, I think Natural gas now is, gonna, is, is basically replacing coal in America. Uh, it's half the emissions of coal. It's not where we want to be as a final alternative, as a bridge fuel to get to, to, to solar and, and, and wind and, and hydro and um, uh, other forms of true renewables. I think it's, it's, it's very important. Um, you know, I did a column a month ago in which I said the real uh, opposition party in America is not the Democratic Party. It's the state of California. Um, and the reason I said that was because um, uh, California has its own climate laws. Um, it has its own energy efficiency laws. It has its own driving mileage standards. And 11 other states have copied it. So Trump can go to Detroit, as he has, and said, boys and girls, make however many Suburbans and Hummers you want. Okay, Donald's in town now, okay? Go right ahead. And they look at him and they say, yeah, Donald, but..." we can't sell them in California. And it's the biggest market in the country. 
So um, this is gonna be much harder for him to set back the clock. That's at the narrow uh, level. Obviously at the, at the global level, um, look, we, we are the Noah generation. We, we are the generation that's gonna have to save the last two. And um, uh, the, the theme of my chapter on that in the book is that, um, you know, later is officially over. Later was a word we got to use when we were growing up. I'll, I'll, I'll repair that, clean that river, I'll replant that forest, uh, I'll save that species. I could do it now or I can do it later. Um, later is now officially over because later now will be too late. Later is when they'll be gone. And, and that's why this is such a pivotal moment. But, you know, I use climate in another way, and maybe this could be a segue to the, to, to the elephant in the room, you know, um, because uh, in my chapter on how politics is being reshaped, and I don't know if this applies to, to New Zealand or uh, Australia right now, but you will tell me. Um, my argument on politics, the chapter is called Mother Nature's Political Party. Um, and that's because I actually, because I use a lot of natural metaphors in the book, and I, I believe we're in the middle of three climate changes at once. We're in the middle of the change of the climate of the climate. We're in the middle of the change of the climate of technology. And we're in the middle of the change of the climate of globalization. I think we're going through three climate changes at once. And what do you want when the climate changes? You want two things. You, you want resilience. You need to be able to take a blow because you get really, as you said, disruptive things happening. But you also want propulsion. You don't want to be curled up in a ball hiding under your bed. You want to be able to move ahead. So as I thought about that challenge, I said, who can I interview on how we get resilience and propulsion when the climate changes? And then I realized I knew this woman, she's 3.8 billion years old, her name's Mother Nature, and she'd lived through more climate changes than anybody. Um, so I called her up and I made an appointment, came by to see her, and um, uh, she sat me down, I said, Mother Nature, how do you build resilience and propulsion when the climate changes? And um, she said, well, First of all, Tom, you have to understand, everything I do, I do unconsciously. Um, but here's my strategies. Uh, first of all, she said, um, I'm incredibly adaptive. Uh, uh, in my world, only the adaptive survive. But I do it in a very brutal way through a mechanism I call natural selection. Uh, secondly, she said, I'm incredibly pluralistic. Oh my God, I'm the most diverse person you know. Um, I love diversity, my most resilient ecosystems are my most diverse ecosystems. I love pluralism. Try 20 different species, see who wins. Um, third, she said, I'm incredibly entrepreneurial. Any, when I see a blank space in nature, an opening, I fill it with a plant or animal perfectly adapted to that niche. I'm incredibly entrepreneurial. Uh, fourth, she said, I'm incredibly sustainable in a circular way. Everything is food, eat food, poop, seed, eat food, poop, seed. Nothing wasted in my world, okay? Uh, fifth, she says, I, I, um, I'm incredibly hybrid in my thinking. I mix oh, the right bees with the right flowers, all kinds, the right trees with the right soils. I mix all kinds of things. I'm hybrid and heterodox in my thinking. And lastly, she did say, I do believe in the laws of bankruptcy. I kill all my failures. I return them to the great manufacturer in the sky, and I take their energy to nourish my successes. So my argument is that the community, the country, and the company that most closely mirrors Mother Nature's strategies for building resilience and propulsion when the climate changes are the ones who will thrive in this age of acceleration. And since it was an election year, I thought, what the heck? What if Mother Nature were running in the 2016 American election? What would her platform look like? And I created Mother Nature's political party. 18-point platform, which of course is just a proxy for my own politics. And um, uh, what I basically explain, I won't go through it all obviously, but to the two main points, what I basically explained is um, on some issues, I am to the left of Bernie Sanders. I believe we should have single-payer health care. If, if you all can figure it out, if Singapore and Sweden can figure it out, how the hell can we not figure it out? So I think we should have single-payer health care. At the same time, though, I'm actually to the right of the Wall Street Journal. 
editorial page, because I, I would abolish all corporate taxes and replace them with a carbon tax, a tax on sugar, a tax on bullets, and a small financial transaction tax. So I want to get radically, I want to strengthen our safety nets and trampolines over here, because I think the age of acceleration is going to be too damn fast for more people. But to pay for it, I want to get radically entrepreneurial over here. Now, what's the problem in our politics? If you're for stronger safety nets and trampolines, you're never for radical entrepreneurship. If you're for radical entrepreneurship, you're never for stronger safety nets and trampolines. What would Mother Nature call that? Stupid, that's what she'd call it. She would say, well, I'm hybrid and heterodox. And my argument is our, poli our political parties today, and the reason they're all blowing up, is they were all designed to answer old questions. The New Deal, the Industrial Revolution, the early IT revolution, and civil rights, both race and gender. And I think the question a political party has to answer today to be relevant is how you cushion the most and get the most out of these three accelerations. And I think we're in a shift between these two models now, and that's why all these parties are blowing up. The Republican Party was a fallow, empty garden, and Donald Trump was just an invasive species that took it over. Okay. So, okay. Thank you. As we leave, we're going to be playing uh, the song that Tom was mentioning before, uh, which is something of an anthem uh, to this book. You should go out and buy a copy of the book in the foyer. You should get Tom to sign it for you. Buy several copies. They each have different endings. Um, <laughs> but they're all optimistic. Um, please join me in thanking the extraordinary Thank Tom. Thank you very much. The 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.